Future-proof gold from Newstalk. Now, Jack Horner is one of the best-known paleontologists in the world. His first discovery was just eight years old when he happened upon a dinosaur fossil. And he's made some of the most important dinosaur discoveries, written several books, and not only served as scientific advisor on all of the Jurassic Park films, but he also helped to inspire the character of Dr. Alan Grant, who's played by Sam Neill. Dr. Jack Horner, it is a real pleasure to speak with you. How are you? I'm doing great. Can you talk to us a little bit about your discoveries and how they came about? Because I watched a talk that you gave and I was struck by uh, this idea, this plan that you had to go to Hell Valley, I think it was. And your idea was to just go there and find some dinosaurs. And, you know, I've been to a lot of places. I'd love to think that you could just have that as your plan and then come up with some amazing discoveries. Can you talk to us about how you came across the dinosaurs that you have? Because you have made some world firsts in the area of paleontology. Well, you know, it's been simple, actually. Um, You know, for years and years, people were just going out in the field to collect dinosaurs to put in museums for people to look at. And so their collecting methods were kind of odd. They were interested in big dinosaurs, for example. And by wanting big dinosaurs, they overlooked the little dinosaurs, the babies and the juveniles. And so, you know, if you just go out and collect everything there is to collect out of a particular rock unit, you know, you get a cross-section of the population, the juveniles and the adults and so on. And Triceratops, for example, Yale University and and all these older institutions in the United States went out and collected Triceratops. And they collected, you know, 50 skulls or maybe 100 skulls, who knows how many. Over time, just trying to fill up a bunch of museums and put Triceratops skulls in them. And from the late 1800s, all the way until the year 2000, no one had ever found a juvenile because they were all looking for big skulls. So we went out, I sent a team out, and we started just collecting everything, and we have all kinds of juveniles now of Triceratops. And we discovered that Triceratops, as it grows up, changes the way it looks so drastically that it turned out that two animals that had different names actually were growth stages of Triceratops. And we just, we're starting to discover this for many different kinds of dinosaurs. But it's all because of this weird selective collecting that people did in the past. So the way that we're collecting now is just unbiased. We collect everything. And so we make some incredible discoveries that other people would have made if they would have been unbiased as well. You managed to find dinosaur eggs and the first ever fetuses. Can you tell us about those discoveries and what they looked like and what it was like when you realized what you'd found? Well, the dinosaur eggs were found originally in the 1800s. But what was interesting is people collect, you know, they collected dinosaur eggs from Mongolia and France, and and they were finding dinosaur eggs all over the place. We found the first dinosaur egg clutches in the Western Hemisphere. But what people had not done, you know, they were thinking of eggs as being these precious items not realizing that an egg is a package and that the precious item is actually the potential of an embryo inside. And so nobody opened an egg. Hmm. And so when we started finding dinosaur eggs in Montana, I just, you know, I had a hammer and I just would break them open and look inside. And if there wasn't an embryo inside, I'd just glue the egg back together again. We found the first dinosaur embryos just because we were willing to break an egg open. 
I don't understand. When you say you find these eggs, presumably they are encased in rock and they have to be freed from the rock. Because you say you're cracking open this egg as if it was like a, an egg we'd have in our fridge. But surely then you can't do That's that. That's why you need a hammer. Because they're hard. <laughs> you would still find that preserved in a way that you'd be able to actually take out an egg and crack it in half with a hammer? Yep. But they're in the rock. I mean, you have to, first you have to prepare them out of the rock. But once you get them out, then you, know, you can just take a hammer and break them open. We spoke with Beth Shapiro about the idea of bringing back dinosaurs and, and the woolly mammoth and so on. And you could almost hear the collective groan of the listeners when she said, look, forget about dinosaur DNA. Dinosaur DNA is gone and we're not going to be bringing dinosaurs back. And that's sort of where that conversation ended. But I, I, I hadn't realized that there were other ways of, if not reviving dinosaurs, but maybe winding back that clock of evolution. And this is a subject you've been working on and have spoken about, and it was in the news where a team were able to turn a bird's beak back into something that more closely resembled a dinosaur's snout and sort of engineered a, a dinosaur egg. And we spoke with uh, Bart Anjan Buller, the paleontologist at Yale University, about that specific breakthrough. But would you mind just giving an overview for people who are listening to the show for the first time of where exactly we are with bringing back dinosaurs? Well, I can just say that, you know, we tried many times to get dinosaur DNA out of a dinosaur, and we did fail. Uh, We just never were able to find it. But birds, living birds, are the descendants of dinosaurs. And in fact, we classify birds as avian dinosaurs. In other words, as an actual group of dinosaurs. And so since they are a group of dinosaurs, they actually have dinosaur DNA. The problem is, is that if you look at a bird, you know, they've changed, they've evolved into their own away from their ancestors, and so they look different. Although the characteristics that they share with dinosaurs are quite a few. In other words, things that we think of as being bird characteristics were actually invented, so to speak, by dinosaurs, like hollow bones and feathers and the wishbone, and the three-toed foot, and so forth and so on. About the only thing we can say for sure is a real bird characteristic that wasn't invented by dinosaurs is the flight feather. And so most of the characteristics that we would want to bring back if we were going to make a dinosaur, a non-avian dinosaur out of an avian dinosaur, birds already have. It's funny because when I first learned about DNA, I assumed that it was just a, a jumble of letters that made blueprints for very specific animals. But actually, in our own bodies and in the bodies of birds, is a large number of commands, and some of them are executed and some of them aren't. Some genes are expressed and some aren't. And in fact, we have a lot of characteristics that we find in other animals that it's in our DNA, but we don't actually use. And, and that's the case with birds, isn't it? Yes, that is true. There are a lot of genes that are probably turned off And there's some that turn on, but then other genes turn them off. An example is dinosaurs had a long tail. And in fact, you know, primitive birds like Archaeopteryx had a long bony tail. And birds begin to grow a bony tail during embryogenesis in their egg. And then a gene turns off the growth of the tail. That's one of the things we're looking for. We're trying to figure out how to make sure the tail continues to grow. Because in an embryonic state, there's lots of paths, obviously, an embryo can go. In the same way as a human embryo, we at some point have eyes the side of our head, we have tails at some point. 
And as you say, certain genes are expressed and we become more and more like a human being. But the idea behind the research that we've seen from Bart and John Bular, a paleontologist at Yale University, is that you could actually stop at an early stage some of these genes going down the chicken path so that the animal that results is much more like a dinosaur. Exactly. Uh, we're doing very much the same thing. We're, we're basically looking for the genes that express particular features. The Yale-Harvard group were looking at the beak and at the point at which the beak changes from sort of the dinosaur condition to the bird condition and figured out how to turn off the pathway to the bird beak and retain basically the historic pathway for the, we'll call it the dinosaur-like mouth. Uh, there's not really a a good word a for term that. for it. Which, which is surprising considering how many terms there are in paleontology. They, they <laughs> haven't got a, so, sort of like, not miles off a beak, but with sort of teeth-like shapes in the beak. Well, another study was done by Matthew Harris, who was at the University of Wisconsin. He actually was able to produce, he found the gene for teeth in a bird and uh, produced a talpid chicken with first-generation teeth. They didn't erupt through the jaw, but he at least was able to produce them in the jaw of a bird. I mean, that sort of stuff is extraordinary, that we can sort of look at evolution and look at genes that may be responsible for taking an animal down a particular path and then sort of divert them, almost like the fat controller from Thomas the Tank Engine, and make the train go down a different path and come up with different characteristics. How many of these have we identified? You were talking about the tail. This is sort of bird beaks back into dinosaur bones. How many characteristics have we identified that we do know the genes for? I mean, how realistic a dinosaur could we build knowing what we know now? Well, we can't. The teeth and the beak, as far as we've gotten so far, the group that I have at Montana State University is working on the tail. We've made some headway, we're, but we have yet to identify the exact gene sequence that is responsible for taking the tail out, in other words. But one of the things that we have learned is that there's a number of genetic pathways that do take the tail away. And what we've discovered is that when the genetic pathway that does take the tail out of particular species like a mouse, the same pathway produces the same kind of structures that we see in birds. In other words, we've got a genetic pathway that will produce bird-like characteristics in a mouse, <laughs> which suggests that we could make a bird-like animal using a different pathway. And, you know, there's a little controversy over whether we should find the exact genes that form the original animal or whether we can use different pathways to make something that sort of looks like the extinct animal. See what I mean? Yeah, I suppose part of me is wondering what the motivation is because it seems to me that over you know 80 to 250 million years, there have been extraordinary changes in both avian and non-avian dinosaurs. And the idea that we could piece by piece figure out the genes to sort of de-evolve these animals, it seems very unlikely. Well, you couldn't make any of these changes if evolution didn't work. The whole point is, is really to see if we can sort of retro-engineer a dinosaur-like animal out of a modern living animal. Now, like I say, it's controversial, and some people say, you know, why would you do that? And I say, you know, who would want to make a chihuahua out of a wolf? But hmm. they did. We have this tendency to want 
to change the animals we have. And we've done that with so many domestic animals. So here we have the opportunity to possibly make a dinosaur-like animal out of a bird. What sixth grader doesn't want one? <laughs> I'm thinking that would be a huge commercial product if you managed to work on it. Like a past chicken dinosaur would be absolutely fantastic. Even if you managed to generate a, a few characteristics, I think it would look pretty awesome. So do you think that this might be the way that we might be able to better study the development of dinosaurs through evolution rather than trying to find fragments of DNA? Or do you have any hope left that we may be able to, as Beth suggested, was in theory possible, but we'd need the components for it, you know, put a, a mammoth egg into a, an elephant and come out with a, a real mammoth? I think every one of these methods is a good method. I think it's important that we discover all of the different ways that we can manipulate genes and make whatever. I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that. Yeah, I can imagine I, animal ethicists kind of saying, <laughs> it sounds like you're just sort of playing Frankenstein with live animals. To, well, you know, that's to mix. what I think a chihuahua is, too. I mean, a bulldog and all these other funny little dogs, they did it over just a longer period of time. Mm. But it's the same you know, effect. You're messing with genes. One of the things that we've learned over a long period of time, and I think you said it was one of the inspirations for Steven Spielberg, was this idea that dinosaurs are social. Because obviously by studying bones, it can be very difficult to understand the behavior of dinosaurs. How do we infer that dinosaurs are social? Well, first of all, all these previous notions about dinosaurs had to do with preconceived ideas. You know, the preconceived idea that dinosaur eggs are precious kept people from breaking them open. The preconceived idea of dinosaurs was that they were ordinary reptiles, and ordinary reptiles aren't very social. And so no one really paid much attention to it. But when we found a dinosaur nest that had baby dinosaurs in it, and after careful study, we discovered that the babies had grown, had basically doubled in size while they were in their nest. And about the only way they could do that is if, you know, if they were fed. Hmm. But we also discovered that the nests were in colonies. And then shortly after that, we began discovering a lot of these giant bone beds that suggested that these dinosaurs not only nested in colonies, but traveled in herds. Hmm. So every, everything points to them being extremely social, which, of course, you know, birds are, and birds had to get it from somewhere. If you don't mind, Jack, can you talk to us a little, bit, a little bit about your experiences working on Jurassic Park? What was it like getting the phone call from Steven Spielberg looking for advice? And what is it like seeing these creations on set? Well, it was exciting to get a phone call from Steven Spielberg asking if I wanted to work on a movie as a consultant. Uh, obviously, I said yes. He asked that I help them make dinosaurs look realistic and were based on science. Uh, he also explained that he was the director and, and he wanted to make a good movie. So my job was really just to answer his questions and point out things that were really wrong, if they were really wrong, but not to turn it into a documentary. Mm. There were obviously a lot of things wrong with the dinosaurs, but they are actors in a fictional movie. And so the main thing is, is that they look good and that they don't do something that we know for sure they couldn't do. When it comes to, to talking about your work to children, you know, obviously the idea of a dino chicken must be extraordinarily exciting to young people. 
How do you talk to them about dinosaurs and, and bring them to life? And do you find that they're always disappointed when they realize that Jurassic Park won't be a reality? Well, I, I would never tell them that Jurassic Park wouldn't be a reality. I mean, someday our genetic manipulations might allow us to make things like that. I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, bringing back precise species might be a little more difficult, but uh, I still think that one day we'll have dinosaurs. Do you still go out on digs? Is that something that, that you're still able to do? That seems what you spent most of your life really enjoying, going out on these digs and, and making new discoveries, rather than being in the lab. Well, I, I live in Montana where it gets really cold in the wintertime. So, yes, I go out in the summertime and collecting dinosaurs, and then in the wintertime, it's in the lab. I like the lab just as much, I think, as in the field. You know, it's all part of the job. And finally, can I ask you, I mean, you're obviously someone who has done extraordinarily well in the academic field, and yet I did hear in, in your talk that you're dyslexic. And considering how I, I've tried to read some paleontological texts and been completely swamped by them, I'm just wondering how does someone with dyslexia fare in a field where it's all about really long words? How did you overcome that to maintain your prominence in the field? I haven't really overcome it at all. Um, <laughs> Reading is still the hardest thing I do, but <laughs> I don't want to sound aloof or anything, but basically I take on projects that no one else has, and by doing that, I don't really have to read anything about what has been done. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, I suppose it does, but you do then sort of need to have an incredible working memory. Well, that's a good question. If no one had ever found a dinosaur embryo, so it was real easy to work on dinosaur embryos. <laughs> no one had ever written a paper about them before. Yeah, you didn't have a lot of research to do. That's what, then. That's just what I mean. I, you know, it's like the Dino Chicken Project. You know, I don't really have to know too much. Of course, <laughs> I have a bunch of evolutionary developmental biologists that work on that as well. But most of the things that I do, no one else has ever done before. So I really don't have much historic reading stuff to do. Jack Horner, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're very welcome.